and welcome to yet another edition of Killing with Bird and Cam. This is Bird, and as always, with me, Cam. Cam, how are we doing, my dear? I am good. I'm good. All right, now, yeah, you know, in, in time. dream, my dog and cat are chasing each other. It's pretty good. And I hear you on that, bud. In in times like this, what? you know, we have to keep the good faith, for sure. And, I mean, we're doing a, a fucking true crime murder podcast, oh, man, so, talking. like, that's as depressing <laughs> as you can get, but... Keeping... Right, it's our... It's, keeping faith. <laughs> yeah, it's our kind of sense of keeping up some kind of semblance of normalcy. That's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say normalcy, and other than watching hella murder, oh boy, and, this needs to be done too. And speaking of, we have time. <laughs> we have a, a very special guest. Um, it's not her first appearance on Illinois with Bird and Cam. We had her on. Uh, was it? Oh shit! It was John Wayne Gacy, or no? It was R. Kelly one? And uh, <laughs> let's just say Wi-Fi had its uh, fun with our guests, so we have her back. She's social distancing with us. Uh, my good friend, Siobhan. Siobhan, how are we doing, my dear? Good. I'm good. How are you? Hey, man, I'm hanging and banging, you know, in, in, these, in these fucking times and shit. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, without further ado, um, we're going to get into this shit. This, uh, what we're going to be talking tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Eric Morse. And this was really when we talk about, we do, we do these high profile murders. We've done uh, a good portion of it while we were doing these last few years. But this one, when it happened, and we described the backdrop of Chicago in the 90s, really, when the crime rate was just the murder. If you think it was bad, and it's bad now, but compared to what it was a quarter of a century ago, Shish. And this story, I think, is a microcosm of everything that just was just horrible or that was just, was going on in that time. I totally agree with you. And it's just it's just a reminder of uh, what we were talking about earlier, actually, with Siobhan about, you know, nature versus nurture. So, oh, yeah. I'm 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 excited to, for us to dig into this and just kind of go to town. Oh, definitely, definitely. And before we do that, Cam, could you hit the good folks with a disclaimer? Yes. So one thing before I do hit the disclaimer, I'm I'm kind of excited that we do podcast over like computers because we've been social distancing before it was cool. Yes. <laughs> so we've been doing this shit like we over hundreds this shit. and hundreds of miles. God so. damn. I'm glad everybody, I hope everybody's being safe and healthy with everything going on right now. Um, but we are here to do what we normally do, and that's report. Um, we gather multiple of information from news reports, uh, police reports, internet, uh, social media outlets, things of that nature. If there's anything that it seems incorrect or offensive or something you want to comment on, just let us know through our Facebook at Killinois with Bird and Cam. Um, again, we're just here to report and do our job. Please don't take anything we say seriously. Um, please don't take it. We're not doctors. We're not, um, 
specialist, but um, yeah, we're here to do this shit. All right. And that said, uh, and that said, um, Cam, I think it's time. You ready to do the damn thing? I'm ready to do the damn thing. All right. And I get to start this time, so this is fun. Um, so, anyways, <laughs> let's give a little backdrop on the Ida B. Wells Homes, which is named after the civil rights activist Ida B. Wells. The homes were constructed in the late 1930s, and by the time they were completed in 1941, it was the fourth public housing project in Chicago. With about 1,600 units, it had over 815 apartments and nearly 800 row houses and garden apartments. And it included a city park, Madden Park. It was the biggest housing project in Chicago when it was created. And this was before uh, um, other housing projects that were constructed during the 1950s and 60s, such as, you know, Robert Taylor Homes and the Greeny Gardens. And these nearly doubled that of the Ida B's. The homes were created by the Public Works Administration, one of many federal New Deal agencies created during the Great Depression. Politically correct, the projects were aimed to house those who were unduly adrift financially due to the Depression. But let's just keep it 100. The plan was to house black families in the ghetto in harmony with federal regulations requiring black, uh, excuse me, requiring public housing projects to maintain the segregation of neighborhoods. And this was paving the way for such awesome ideas as redlining, which is the act of refusing a loan or insurance to someone because they live in the area deemed to be a poor financial risk. And this pretty much has a slow burn effect, which eventually snowballs into such fine consequences as neglect by the city housing authority. In, it's a disproportionate intake of gangs, gang violence, drug dealing, and usage, and all this neglect by the city and the city's housing authority at large. This is Urban Decay 101, guys. And this leads us to 1994. So so let's talk about 1994 in Chicago. So that was the year that the United Center opened up for the first time. It was the year that the Bears made the playoffs for the last time in that decade. It was the year <laughs> It was the year that many White Sox fans thought that the this would be the year that they would have won the World Series had there not been a strike that summer. Michael Jordan was playing baseball. Richard Daly was in his 260 year reign as mayor. O.J. Simpson was signing autographs in O'Hare hours after slicing two necks half a country oh, away. Oh, man. And we, we all three, were about two-year-old shitting machines who probably averaged a whooping a day. But, to be serious, Chicago experienced 937 murders in 1994. And I will say that this would not, this would not be the only episode that we will cover from that year, as crazy as it sounds. But think of like this, guys. This was the third straight year that the murder rate dropped from the 970 high of 1992, the year that we were all born. But of the 937 murders, there was one that really stuck out from the rest. So even at the ages of 10 and 11, respectively, Jesse Rankins and Tykeese Johnson were already proving as a microcosm of the generational cycle of the consequences of urban decay that emanated from the Ida B. Wells homes and from the Chicago Housing Authority in general. 
coming from a single parent household where their fathers were both in prison and well in his case in the case of Jesse Rankins where his father was already in prison and a drug addicted mother who abandoned him to the streets by his own admission Jesse Rankins was arrested on at least several different charges which include unlawful use of a weapon more uh, let's see solicitation aggravated battery a theft of values worth more than $300. Meanwhile, Tykeese Johnson, whose father was also in prison during this time, but had a mother that was in his life, had a criminal record showing a theft charge for his efforts. And I think this is something that definitely Siobhan can also attest to in terms of growing up around in crime-infested neighborhoods and urban areas or having, you know, spending childhoods there. It, it it can really, it, 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 it has a, it, it leaves a impression on a youth. And that can really be magnified without a presence of a father or a father figure. Yes, and um, I definitely saw that happen in my family. You know, my cousins were definitely examples of that environment growing up. They went to were incarcerated, had multiple kids, things like that. Definitely, I think that being around that violence, my grandmother's house was shot up, set on fire. Like being in that type of violence is just, I think it definitely has a, an effect. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things is that I I know from my perspective, it would. And when all my, like, neighborhood friends, like, it would be a shock to see if they had, like, a dad, like, in their lives. And, I mean, in my case, I didn't meet my dad until I was 19 years old. And it's just one of those things is that it's kind of commonplace. You know, the fact that I actually met my dad as late as it was, that was, it was kind of like an anomaly for me. So, it just, to Cam, it's just kind of just to give you a a element of what we're dealing with in the reins of how it was like growing up in the inner cities. And then you also have all of these, you know, you have crime running rampant in some sectors. I was telling you before we went on the air, you know, I've seen two people get killed in my lifetime. Like my eyes have seen two people get killed. And it's like this fucked up in the sense, a fucked up rite of passage. Like, more often than not, you're going to see people getting killed. And it's like you have that code of silence, if not, or it's like people just keep their mouth shut. It's a very, very, it's an experience. I'll just put it like that. And my my mom was a teacher, a high school teacher for the, the behavioral disorder kids from the inner city of Chicago. And um, she had to, you know, do get her master's and her PhD. Not her, I don't think her PhD, but I had to do all this research on just the family behind the teenager um, and why that teenager acted the way they did. And there were many times where she had students that she said had no, had no chance because they had no parents in their life. And the only people that raised them were kids, you know, people from the streets and that, you know, dad was in jail. Mom didn't give, you know, two shits about them, and she would say that they're lucky they even graduated because they 
never had a chance. Nobody ever gave them that chance. Oh, definitely, definitely. It's just, and as we get into the notes, and as we talk more succinct, succinctly about what these two experienced or endured, yeah. it's just, again, it's like a microcosm of many, what many youth had, you know, had to go through in those, mm-hmm. in, in, in that environment, for sure. And despite all the charges that these two boys had, it seemed as if they were pretty much able to skate through all this with little to no punishment. For example, after Rankins was indicted with unlawful use of a weapon, he actually missed several scheduled court appearances relating to the charge after being released into his mother's custody. And according to Cook County court records, Rankin spent two days in juvenile detention in May of that year when he missed his court dates. And he spent a third day in the detention center in August when he failed to show up in court. And so when he showed up late in August, Rankins was found to be delinquent and was ordered to serve a home detention sentence and placed on probation. The remaining of his charges was Johnson, as was Johnson's theft charge, was respectively dropped by prosecutors. And this kind of shows, too, that do you guys think, although they kind of had, you know, bad background, you know, they were... Their dads were imprisoned. Moms were addicted to drugs. Do you think if their punishment was harder, they wouldn't have turned out the same way? What do you guys think? Well, in this case of Rankins... Oh, you go first, Ravon. Yeah, I guess. I'm actually surprised that they didn't get a stricter sentence. I'm, like, really shocked. Um... I would have assumed the prejudice right off the bat, but to see that they got just a slap on the hand, I feel like it shows like maybe stricter punishments should have been the first thing they resorted to. Oh, definitely. And I guess maybe in the case of Tykeese Johnson, where, okay, you, at least from what the, what was reported from court records, that it was only the theft charge, but you have uh, Jesse Rankin's, who, I mean, you just go from a bevy of all of these escalating felonious charges. You have unlawful use of a weapon. You have possession of a weapon. You have assault. And it's like at 10. And when you talk about the background, the drug addicted mother and the father in prison, when he, was, when he wasn't in prison, he was very abusive. So you have that you have that element and this is what he's this is what he this is this is his this is what he's adapted to, if you will. And it leads to October thirteenth, nineteen ninety four. Jesse Rankins links up with his friend Tykees Johnson. And again, both were from the Ida B's. Both had criminal records. And mind you, Rankins was still on probation for the unlawful use of a weapon charge and was supposed to be in home detention. And when you have two boys that have run amok individually, and you put them together, and well, the next thing you know, they plan to get candy from the nearby Joel Osco around the corner. The only problem problem is, one can assume that they tried it before, and either they got caught or banned, like I was that Walgreens that's right by that Joel Osco. So... And people from Chicago, if you know the Jewel, if you're listening to this, there's the Jewel Osco 
that was on that's on 34th and King Drive, right by the Walgreens. Yeah, but it was really a hotbed in that time for kids and Ida B's uh, who would like you know they would just steal from there because again there wasn't a lot at least in those times. I remember when I was in Walgreens and when we used to steal as kids, there wasn't a lot of cameras. I guess you know statute limitations. I can say whatever the fuck, but yeah, there was not a lot of supervision. Kids do that. Kids, I've stolen as a kid too. My mom found out and whooped my ass, but it's it's a common thing as a kid though to do to steal from places like that and to steal candy and right. I'm gonna be the anomaly and be like, I'm Eric Morris, where I'm like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> In my defense, it was the first time I ever went, and I was like, ooh, this is for free. We get this for free. Right? I mean, like I said, we we don't. I I didn't know about it. It wasn't free. (laughs) But here's the thing. So, like, again, they feel, either if they got caught or banned, whatever the fuck, if they feel that they convinced someone else to do their bidding, the more the merrier. That said, they encounter five-year-old Eric Morse. And they ask Eric if he can steal candy from And not only does Eric say no, but he goes to tell his mother. The mother ends up telling the mother of Tykeese Johnson, which then presumably puts both Tykeese and Jesse in a severe doghouse. And as you expect, Rankins and Johnson are pissed. They got their hand caught in the proverbial cookie jar. And as a product of their environment, their retaliatory nature just kicks in the high gear. But just like that, guys, the two hatch is much more devious, just horrendous plot. And just to have this mindset at this age, fuck. So, later that evening, around 6 or 7 p.m., Rankins and Johnson found Eric and his brother, 8-year-old Derek Lemon. As detailed by the Chicago Tribune via Derek's statement to the police, Jesse and Tykees convinced the boys to go up to an abandoned 14th-story apartment row on uh, 383 South Langley Avenue, claiming that they had this makeshift clubhouse to use. And when they get there, Jesse and Tykees again solicited, solicited Eric to steal for them. This time, they also asked Eric to help along. And to this end, both of the brothers refused. Jesse and Tykees on wooden boards out of the two building and then they approached and grabbed Eric, picking him up and hanging him from a high rise. Now again, this is 14 fucking stories. It's not two. I've jumped out of a two-story apartment building before. Um, Don't fucking do that. This is 14. Derek pulled pulled his brother by his arms and is able to get him back into the clubhouse. But immediately after that, Jesse Tykees grabbed Eric again and pulled him to another window and dangled him out of that fucking window by his wrist. And like before, Eric tried to save his brother and grabs his right hand. And as soon as he does, Jesse and Tykees let go of Eric. And Derek tries to lift his brother back over the window ledge. But Tykees ends up biting him on the right hand. Derek eventually loses his grip and Eric falls 14 stories. He suffered massive blood force trauma to the head 
and he was take Eric was taken to the nearby children's hospital just three miles away. By 7.56 p.m., Eric was pronounced dead on arrival. And of the 937 murders Chicago experienced in 1994, Eric became the 53rd child who was added in that statistic. An autopsy was performed and would come out later by the medical examiner. The police reported that in addition to the blood force trauma to the head, Eric was also stabbed and maced in the face. Okay, so there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. Um I can just to hear Cam, you know, reading that and her I can tell when she gets visibly like pissed. I mean, I can sense that a mile away and I saw Siv- uh, seeing Siobhan's reaction. Like, just gasped. And I mean, again, it's just, it's one of those things that's just really unfathomable. I wonder, I, at what point did, at what point did they, were they able to stab and mace him in the what, face? My what thing point? is, I think it's one of those things that when, as Derek later, when he, when they went to trial or went to juvenile court and he revealed, because I think it was also, again, from what the coroner had detailed i mean again you can see stab notes and i'm pretty sure okay if you're macing him in the face you're gonna have some kind of residue on on him but i mean just the torture just the torture what imagine his last moments no five nobody let alone a five-year-old should ever have to go through that let alone his brother Derek, who not only witnessed this tried to save him and couldn't do it. Yeah. And I couldn't, I would fucking lose my shit if that, I would fucking lose it if that happened. I would have stabbed them both right there. Mm-hmm. Eric was stabbed, I would have found it and stabbed fucking Tykees and Jesse. Fuck those kids. Right. And again, it, it, it doesn't, you know, the fact that, you know, you're talking about somebody, in, at least with Jesse Rankins, who somehow find a, a weapon if he was already prosecuted, not pro- well, if he was already arrested for such charges, and you're talking about the wild, wild west of one of the more dangerous neighborhoods in the city at that time, it it doesn't leave a want to it doesn't leave one to 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 have an imagination of they can they can procure such items to do shit like this. Uh, and it's and it's frustrating too because they the two little boys. I mean, as, as a l- little kid, you look up to the older kids, right. kind of as you know role models, and they're supposed to be the cool guys, mm-hmm. and you're supposed to trust them. And these kids did nothing but torture him because he said no because he did what was best for him. Yep. And said no, and these kids got mad for, they, they got selfish, they got selfish, and I just, I just don't get how kids could even think that way, and that's, I guess what sets you apart from a kid who grows up to be a psychopath and kills animals at this age, right. you know, to them, humans are just animals, and it's, it's bullshit. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things, and not to not to get ahead, it's just one of those things of kind of like sorting out uh, in terms of, and this is why I want to do part that um, I asked Siobhan to be on here is to kind of sort out the criminology of a case like or a crime like this. 
I mean, from my from my vantage point, this is this is clear premeditation. Even yes, this is juvenile minds, and we have to take into account that the brain isn't cognitively fully formed until you're in the mid twenties. But when we when we take into factor what Rankins and what Johnson, especially Rankins, what they have done up to the last at this point, and they knew they, they easily knew right from wrong. Yeah, they get mad. Right. They get mad because this kid says, "No, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do your dirty work." Not only that, but he does the right thing and tries to uh, and tells his mother to help make sure they get held accountable. And they get mad. Look, we've we've been we've had siblings. We, we've been in situations where okay, we get told on, right? And, and you beat each other up. I used to beat my sister up all the fucking time. Exactly, exactly. And the same with me and my siblings. And it's one of those things that it never got to the point of I am going to have this dastardly plan. I'm going to coerce somebody with the promise. Oh, I want to show you this cool place. Just to con them in, to keep up with the con, and then I'm going to go to this 14 and a high riser, 14 stories. Just so And much. I'm going to dangle them. The first time you would think, oh, just to scare them. But they did it again. And it then is. when they, they let him go, they, they let him go, Derek gets his hand on him. He's trying to save him. And then just just to be on the safe side, they bite Derek on his hand. That's, to make sure the kid fell. To make sure he fell. To make sure he fell. I mean, that's... I think that's straight up. That's just straight up first degree murder. Yeah. Okay. And I think that, to be honest, I, there, I do not have empathy or sympathy for their environment. Because I knew... Because you know, you knew what you was going to do was going to cause bodily harm. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, I really think that... But I do believe... There should be enough room for redemption. And and we'll get into more of that as we go along with the story. So almost immediately, Jesse Rankins and Tykeese Johnson were arrested and charged in the murder of Eric Morse. They gave written and oral statements upon interrogation and were held in a juvenile detention center. And as one would expect, the manner in which this five-year-old met his fate got outrage from not just the city, but the country, with even President Bill Clinton condemning the crime in a speech. And if the two were convicted of the first-degree murder charges and the delinquency petition filed against them, they would have stood to face a maximum sentence of, get this guys, inside a locked residential facility outside Illinois until they turned 19 years old. No. So that's what we're dealing with. And around that time... The Illinois state legislator was debating whether or not to lower the age in which child delinquents were charged as adults from 13 to 10, in large part because of the high rate of murders that juveniles were committing, including Robert Sandifer, who, sorry, guys, we will be covering down the line. And, I mean, hoy. But it seems with this Eric Morse murder, like, this incident was the tipping point as a bill was passed in the House and Senate and quickly enacted in all. But due to the charges being grandfathered in, 
this would stay in juvenile court. So again, the max that we're looking, the max that we were looking at was they're going to be incarcerated until 19. <clears throat> That's frustrating. Ex again, especially too, because they knew what they were doing and they know right from wrong. And to the victim's family, that's a very big slap in the face. That five-year-old had every, like, potential in the world to be somebody. Right. And they snatched it, and they were only given to the age of 19. That's a slap in the face. Yeah. It, it is Especially to his, his brother, too, who had to witness it and live through it every day now. Oh, yeah. And, and again, like, when we, um, as we get into the end of the story, we talk about the aftermath, and it's just... It's really a depressing, just a depressing outlook as everything, as everything eventually materialized. It's just one of those things, again, like you, you hit it right on the nail cam. This shit stays with you forever. Oh. Yeah. And it, and again, for these kids, they had no chance to enjoy life as kids. Yeah. And so the following year, both Rankins and Johnson had their cases heard in juvenile court. And beforehand, the boys were given mental tests and they were found to have low IQs and other learning disabilities. However, they were both found competent to go through the trial um, because they both knew what they were doing when they committed this murder. And I think it was a no-brainer, given the premeditated nature of how these events played out. The star witness for the prosecution was Derek Lemon, who reiterated his, sto his story of Eric's final moments and his desperate attempts to save him. Aided with that Rankins and Johnson <clears throat> mentioned their written and oral statements implicating both of their involvement in Eric's death. The boys were uh, both found delinquent in juvenile court in 1995 for the murder of Eric Morris, and they were sentenced to maximum term of five years probation. And by going to prison, they became Illinois' youngest inmates. I think, too, do you guys think, I, I, I think this plays a role, but not in this case, the low IQ and the other learning disabilities. I think in most cases that would play a role, but I just feel like it doesn't in this situation. I don't think that IQ... I don't think IQ play fit this at all. It doesn't take it doesn't take very many brain cells to decide if I put this child outside the window and I let go, bad things are gonna happen. Huh. Yeah. I don't think that IQ has anything to do with it. And I don't think either their IQ plays a role in what's right versus wrong, but they they had enough they had enough cognitive uh, they had enough cognitive wherewithal to know, okay, we want to do something, and we're going to win, and they have the foresight to be like, well, we've probably done it enough that we're probably going to get caught, and I'm already on, in the case of Rankins, I'm already on probation. I don't want to put myself in a situation where I'm going to, they're going to send me to juvie until when I'm fucking 18, so we're going to get somebody else to do it. And then... When it blows up in my face, they hatch this plot. Like, this is, again, 
somebody, yeah, maybe the fact that the edu- the, they had uh, education that was like maybe second grade and they're 10 and 11 when they're supposed to be in fourth and fifth grade or fifth or sixth grade, respectively. But they know we're going to do this and we're able to trick and manipulate these people. It takes some kind of cunning. Right. That I don't think low IQ can do, you know? And somebody is calling me. Oh. Nope. Okay. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I agree because if they knew that they couldn't go back into a place because they broke the rules, they should know that they should know the difference between good and bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 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 I'm, I'm with you right there. So the lawyers for Rankins and Johnson advocated that the two needed to be placed in a treatment facility for troubled youth to have any shot at living normal lives. However, Judge Carol Kelly, acting on the recommendation of child care services and the fact that both boys showed no emotion when the verdict was read, sentenced them to prison with the qualifications that they received therapy and other services. So, Tykeese Johnson was released from prison after five years. Meanwhile, nine extra years were added to Rankin's term after sexually assaulting a fellow inmate with a Sark object. I so, think Rankin's is the is the problem and the the leader in all this. Yeah, it, it it seems to me like yeah, I think you're dead on with that. And again, as you you know talking about the fact that while when he was still in prison, that he was you know still in that mind to still do shit like that. So in 2009, both and by this point, Rankins was released, as was Johnson. But and they still in the last several years, they've been in and out of prison. Just it's what you expect, right? Recidivism to a T, high rates, if you will. So, um, 2009, both Rankins and Johnson sat down with Chicago Tribune. And in a long-ranging interview, they both stated that the therapy that was mandated to them was never received. And no surprise, given what we just talked about. And once to release, they were off to fend for themselves. No better condition as adults when they entered prison as kids. And regarding the murder, Rankins revealed that the incident gave him recurring nightmares. In one dream, Rankin said he is kidnapped and thrown off a high-rise building, only to suddenly wake in a sweat just as he's about to hit the ground. And another, he describes that Eric, his eyes red and blood dripping from his mouth, nose, and ears, repeatedly pleads with Rankins, Why me? I didn't get a chance to grow up. And as a reminder of his actions, guys, Rankins gets a tattoo over his heart with a gravestone that's etched in black ink with the name Eric Morse, 1984-1994. The only thing was he got Morse's name misspelled, and he was off on his birth year by five years. So uh, do what you will with that information. And while Johnson said that he didn't have nightmares, he admitted that he was still trying to put Eric's murder behind him. But as he said, it was only it was always going to be there at the back of your mind. And to no surprise, again, uh, both have found themselves in and out of prison once being released. And in summing up the totality of what happened, Rankin said, 
what we did, it was like an unhuman beast that had no feeling whatsoever. And I live with that every day and night. So again, that's a lot to unpack there. I mean, we were just talking before we got on the air about Cam's referencing prisons overseas that uh, aim to rehabilitate prisoners and how, at least in this case, there was no such uh, of that. No chance here. And I, I, it's frustrating for me because he sat there and said it was an unhuman beast. I had no feeling whatsoever. But I think he's still that person. Mm. So what do you, that's it, what do you make of the fact that he got a tattoo of Eric Morse? I don't think, I almost feel like it's a, a laugh in their face. Not only is it incorrectly spelled, it's the incorrect date, and it's bullshit if he's going to sit there and be like, well, I didn't know the right way to spell his name. Yes, you did. Well, yes, you did. Oh, I Sure, I would think if he didn't go to court and have to go through all this, and maybe, but I feel that since he's gone to court, gone to jail for this, for this exact thing and this person, I, he would know how to spell it. Right. right. Yeah, and I, I like you. This has been part. You know, this is the seminal moment of your life. You should at least get this motherfucker's name right. I just feel that he. I don't think he's having these nightmares. I think he's just saying it to make himself sound better that he has. I don't think he's got any guilt. If he did, he wouldn't be doing the same shit he was doing out in the streets again, going back to jail. I, I think this is just another day for him and he's just putting on a scene. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Jet. Oh, Mike, Mike you're just that's terrible, Tommy. Mike, we talk about we talk about some sorry, cameo. Sorry. We're really getting into nitty gritty. So yes, as a Cam was making like such awesome, awesome uh, points of why the justice system or the prison system is just in America at least is just royally fucked. Uh, Mike seems to have uh, popped up, so we have some ca- a cameo appearance. Mike is a, a former guest. On, on uh, our podcast, so Mike, um, and I just wanted just to uh, to uh, pick your brain, if you will. You from Chicago? Yes, sir. Uh, we talked. Uh, I told you about you know the episode we're gonna do about Eric Morris, the five year old who was thrown off the Ida B's. Yeah. And I mean, it's just one of those the things. House of projects. I understand. Yeah, yeah, and this is one of those things is that you talk about how murder especially in chicago in the 19 the 80s and the 1990s and you talk about urban decay and you talk about again high risers just kind mm-hmm. of to get your kind of like two cents for for what it's worth well i mean for 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 what it's worth my my father uh once told me a couple of stories about a woman that he dated that actually lived in the ida b wells uh homes uh back in the back in the uh 80s and he was like, he, <laughs> he said he said he only went to go see her once because he had to take like eight flights of stairs to get up there. And you know, once you get up there, it was only one reason he was going up there. And if right. he didn't get it, he wasn't coming back. <laughs> and literally, he walked past like uh, one of the staircases and looked in and some dudes was jumping this dude in, in one of the hallways. 
and he would, <laughs> he hurried up and got out there and got in his car and never called that girl ever again. So, I mean, for, for, for what it's worth, that that just tells you about the type of mentality and type of um, gang fair it is when you go when you go into any type of housing projects um, and just, you know, the type of mentalities that they have where it's basically you got to protect yourself. And after a certain time of day, I wouldn't be going out. I mean, you, I wouldn't let the kids out or anything like that because you can't you can't group together that many people. And not expect some tomfoolery, if you will, to uh, happen. You know, it's just it's just bound to happen. You know, and I mean, for for what it's worth, this ain't my podcast, so I ain't got to be politically correct. Niggas ain't shit, and if you put them in the same room, they're gonna act crazy. Well, like I said, you know, we we always pride ourselves <laughs> on being candor and like letting shit fly. So by all means, I do. <laughs> I sure should do appreciate that. Uh, that estimate and like yeah it can't um and mike you're, you're definitely right i mean you know this we can do a we can do a lot of episodes based in in the, in the setting of these housing projects uh for sure for I sure mean, you have the you have the case either I'm, I'm, I'm sorry not, not to cut you off but either that or the schools like right. like like the, like the big schools yeah you have the case with the, the robert uh taylor homes where the 17th month old infant was stolen from a grandmother and never was found you had the case i think it was in cabrini greens when the elderly woman was killed after she called police and the police never came so it's just a lot of i mean a lot of stories that came that emanated from these projects and again it's just it was just like the the slippery slope of what happens when you have this type of neglect and the the overlaying consequences. You know something? Thinking about like just going back to what Cam said earlier about having you know someone there to help with recidivism, you know, giving them the resources to productive members of society. I think I really think it depends on how long your sentence is. If you're going to be in prison for the rest, and you're not going to get out at a good age to be uh, useful to society, I don't think you deserve that resource. You fucked that when you got in. You got that when you got in. Hey, hold on. So, you out here wilding, G, for real? <laughs> you're going to get out before the age of. 60, then I can see, yeah, let me get you some education, some resources, some counseling. But we're just going to waste the way. I'm not going to waste resources on you. going to be old and decrepit. It's no but, 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 Siobhan, the, 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 the money, the amount of money it takes to keep a prisoner in prison is literally one of the, re- one of the main reasons that's causing the state to go bankrupt. Because of that, I mean, you would much rather put them out than, than, than to keep them in there. They're not making money if they're in there. Mm-hmm. So, so let's guys they're, talk they're about costing them resources, right? And, and while we're talking about prison and prisoners and all this stuff, as again, this story, when we talk about the aftermath and we talk about Derek Lemon, the brother of Eric Morse, who witnessed this traumatic uh, incident, that you know, this story does not end right here. Like this, it gets more tragic. Not for Derek, not for Derek. And that's what's so unfortunate that, you know, tragedy didn't end with Eric's death or the problems faced by Jesse and Tykees uh, in the aftermath. Um, Derek Lemon, who tried to save his brother's life and also helped the prosecutors in proving their case by testifying, was forever traumatized by the events. And let's be honest, can any of us blame him? 
Derek actually ended up receiving a email from a lawsuit settlement from the Chicago Housing Authority and a private management company. However, no amount of money would probably ever solve the problems or grief Derek experience. And yeah, I wouldn't, I don't think anything, other than me physically killing them myself, I don't think anything could solve it. Yeah, ain't nothing like, ain't nothing like retributive justice. Get, well, well, get well, all Dexter well, Morgan well, well. on that shit. Well, killer. When we call you Killer Cam, we don't really mean you to be a killer. No, don't mess with my family. <laughs> <laughs> if I watch this person kill my brother, oh, you bet you they're not coming out alive. Mm-mm. For certain. Or, 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 call the cops. They've got three dead bodies because I killed two of them. Or take, or your, just take me away. Fuck it, I don't care. Take me or away. Your twin sister, for that matter. Oh yeah, yeah. If if you touch my sister. It's done. You're done. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> True story. But um, back to the million dollars um, and Derek and the grief and everything. Um, Derek ended up using his grief and coping with it by dropping out of high school and pretty much continuing a life of crime. And in March 2006, during a family barbecue, Derek ended up getting in an argument with one of his aunt's boyfriends and the altercation turned violent and Derek ended up shooting this man to death. Five years later, Derek was convicted of first degree murder and was sentenced to 71 years and won't be eligible until 2081 when he turns 94. 2081? Yeah, he's got it. If it's still around, if it's still around. And essentially, that's a life. That's a life sentence. It's just you just talk about fucked up. For it's sure. Because Derek never had that chance, you know. From from before he was double digits, he knew crime and death and murder, and that's yeah. all he knew. And, and it wasn't something that uh, we had in the notes. Um, but when uh, Eric had failed again, fourteen stories we talk about, folks. Derek runs all the way from the from 14 floors because he thinks, okay, if I can get down in time, I might save him. That's yep. just it's just so heartbreaking. And I remember when I read that, I was just like, man, that 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 was really gutting to know. Mm-hmm. So would you so so would you guys cl- cl- uh, classify this man as uh, a product of his environment? Do you think his environment is what caused him to do this? I mean, obviously. Obviously, there, 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 there's the death that happens, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, and we can we can all speak to this as I believe all three of us who are African American on this show right now have dealt with different types of trauma yes. and have had to talk to somebody at different times. Clearly, the first thing he needed to do was go see a freaking therapist after all this happened. He was going to need years of therapy to be able to get back to where he needed to be. Yeah, um, and, and he might never come back from it, but therapy. Yeah, and, and, and it's a, that's a that's a, uh, a hell of an estimation, a hell of a point to make, Maggle. Um, you know, when it comes with with therapy and African Americans, you know, that's a cultural thing. Is where it's not looked uh, looked fond of. You know, we mm-hmm. we have been trained culturally. To kind of like hold that shit in. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Pray about it. Oh my God. Pray, yep. Pray about it. Uh, don't talk about it. You're not supposed to cry if you're a man. You know what I'm saying? If if if, if you a girl and you get played, you a goofy. That's on you. You a mm. bop or whatever. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, and stuff like that. But but really, really, and like I said, all three of us had can attest to this. We've all had to go to therapy. You know, and 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 I I I think because we are still law-abiding citizens for the most part, <clears throat> um, right. but yeah, we are we are law-abiding citizens and still able to function in this in this world without being having too but not being too messed up. You know, clearly the therapy did some work. It did some help. You know, so but a lot of people don't have these type of resources. I mean, because it, it costs. It, it like I said to have a therapist, like 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 I said, like you you have to a you know, for, for me, I had to go see somebody about seeing the therapist. And then once I saw somebody, they they, they sent me to a, a certain type of therapist and all these things, man. And I just, like I said, you, uh, there's a lot of trauma that goes on in the black community that we are told to hide, cover up, pretend doesn't happen or hide those feelings. And then when you meet people that have dealt with trauma and <laughs> have let that stuff go, when they reveal you that you really have issues, I mean, it's so crazy. Like I said, like with, like with, I, I never get with my friend, my white friends. I love you, Cam. When my white friends approached me and was like, and was like, Mike, you really need to go see a therapist about all this, man. You got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. You know, it was really eye opening for me because it just in our culture and in our families, we're taught to keep everything inside and keep everything at home inside those four walls. And if you bring it, and if you bring it out and let anybody know, you get whooped when you get home. Mm-hmm. For, t- for telling your family business. Yeah. Now, I can say in the case of Derek Lemon, um, again, he was awarded a million dollars, and he would, I would like to think that, you know, some kind of child services would have at least mandated or at least set up some kind of counseling. I mean, we're talking about, again, an eight, who was eight, his kid was eight years old, who, who sees his brother, who he is supposed to protect, and he tried to protect, he tried doing the right thing, and he loses him. I don't know what kind of... It has to be some kind of... You have survivor's guilt. You have some PTSD. And... To, so fear heights. Yeah. I mean, to, to, to undertake that kind of therapy, that it, that is a hell of a lot. A hell of a lot to work with. And who knows if that would have, you know, being what his, you know, outcome was, Derek Lemon... Who knows what good that would have done? Mm-hmm. But and, and oh, he no. probably didn't get that million. You know how people are with their settlements out of court. Um, you don't always see the settlement, right? And especially he he, de- he definitely didn't see a million in that killer. He 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 definitely probably maybe got seven uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand. Probably like not. Cause, yeah, because you because you know that lawyer probably took a good chunk of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, good yeah. point. Good point. Oh, so, and he was probably underage when he first got the money, so then all that money went to someone else. And oh yeah, mm-hmm. I can definitely Sorry. see that. So what? And because, another thing in black communities, when anybody comes up big, everybody come up big, and, 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 and you and, and you got to take care of the whole family. Why does this remind gotta, me of Lottery Ticket, the movie? You gotta, you gotta get Big Mama, uh, the the, the orthopedic shoes she been needing. Oh my you God. gotta. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta help fix Uncle John John's car. 
You got to help little Day Day uh, get get into college, all that stuff, man. Hey, man that's that's don't, that... don't, don't, seriously, seriously, don't make it in a black family. I, I told God, I, I, I'm i a faith believing man. I told God, I said, God, I don't want to be a millionaire because I already know what's going to happen. I'm cool, I'm cool, all that. That's pressure and, and stuff I, I need in my life. I've never, I've never heard anybody ask the Lord to stay in the middle class bracket. Um... <laughs> Trust me, it's worth it. Wow. The, the peace of mind of being middle class, so. I know I'm going to sound like that person, but I think that's a cop-out to use the environment as a reason or to justify your actions because there's plenty of people who have been through some real sick to the quail and who have become successful for good people. So I call bullshit. I have been through personal shit. You don't see me out here wilding or doing destructive stuff. But did you get the help, though? Did you get the yeah. help and did you have the resources that were able to, that were allowed to, allotted to you to be able to take care of the situation and help cope and deal with the situation? Obviously, once something happens to you, you'll never be back 100%. Right. But, yep. you, but, but you had the resources to get the help you needed. What I'm, what I'm saying when I say product your environment, I'm saying he does not have the resources to be able to go get the help that he needs. And he didn't either, and, and the worst part too, especially with people that do get help, it's the whole step of getting that help, that even if he did have the resources, maybe he grew up in the family that was like, no, you don't get help, you deal with it, and that eats <laughs> away at you, and that, kill, that eats you alive, especially too. Oh, definitely, definitely. Hey, Killer, hey, Killer, you ain't you ain't never grew up in the family where they, where they tell you to go get that extra virgin olive oil, to get that blessed oil? <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that's gonna solve all your problems. Now you we'll just get, get that blessed story. Yeah. Oh, boy. My family didn't go to church on Sundays. Oh, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 uh, my my mom doesn't like me swearing, so uh, <laughs> I still get beat up. <laughs> so, so what became of the Ida B. Wells homes? So in 1995, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development took over Chicago Housing Authority public housing projects with Department Secretary Henry Cincinero saying that Eric's murder was essentially the X factor in a decision that was probably being molded over for years. And eventually, guys, one by one, the high rises began to fade, literally. Demolition began in Ida B. Wells' homes in late 2002 and was completed in August 2011 with the demolition of the last two residential buildings at 3718 South Vincennes Avenue, only just a few blocks where the murder took place. And in time, many of the hot housing projects, the Harold Ickes, the Robert Taylor Homes, Stateway Gardens, all were demolished in 2000, by 2012 with new residential areas catering to middle-class, multicultural-based populations situated in their places. So when I was in high school, and I was just um, talking to Cam about this before we were starting recording, I took the four cottage grove from home to school every day, and I always passed where the idle bees used to be. And there are new residential properties. From my vantage point, from my perspective, it's like the projects never existed from an architectural point of view. And you go to 38th and Langley, the site where Eric Morse was thrown off of. I mean, guys, Google map that shit. It's like a nice area. You got beautiful apartments. I remember walking that way going to the park for football practice in high school. And you couldn't tell me like 14, 15 years ago 
there stood this place where an unfathomable tragedy of the highest accord occurred. It's like a lifetime or two removed when you think about it. Just coming back home myself, it, it seems like a lifetime ago. Going back to my hometown, everything's different. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, I think that um, can can, can we also? But I'm pretty sure you guys are trying to wrap, and I ain't trying to keep y'all super long. But can we also talk about what happened after they tore down the Ida B. Wells homes and where all those people went and the gentrification of black people? Oh boy, how they literally sent be... them all the way out to the suburbs, and oh. that's when the suburb schools started getting banned. Boy, I'm telling you, we're going to do enough. We- I don't know about my suburb schools. We got real good at fucking sports. I'll tell you that. We're going to stay every fucking year. <laughs> Tyrone could really shoot basketball, man. I'm telling you. Oh, Damn. <laughs> well, I'm telling you this. Um, We, uh, and kind of just to go home on this one, you know, uh, as, as Cam said in the beginning of this episode, it's a lot about what we do with social distancing. And in times like these, we do it right. I mean, the hell, Mike came in three quarters, uh, three quarters of the way here, and just he like was, in a Robarski class, just like in a Robarski <laughs> class, he'll be. He'll Boy, be, I remember those days. He'll be <laughs> snoring. I mean, loud snores, and then she'll be looking like, "Is that wake wake Mike Jones up?" Okay. <laughs> and you know, he was able to bring add a perspective. You had. Siobhan, who came, you know, came here, and she has a criminal justice background, and you know, for able to to have those those points, it's just one of those things. Is that it's always cool to, I mean, it's always cool to pick Cam's brain uh, when we do these these shows, but it, it's just a and of course, and, and, and of course, our esteemed host of uh, Young Birdman's and well, I don't have to toot my own horn, or, or but you know. <laughs> But I mean, it's just always from from my perspective, it's such an awesome uh, sight to see when I'm picking all you know my best friends, who can you know we can elaborate and we can just provide some kind of thoughtful and poignant dialogue when we're talking about. They're all about different too. They're, we're all from different areas yes. and backgrounds and got different different mindsets, and it's it's. It's Listen, yes. I don't know about y'all, but I'm from the real Chicago. Oh, get the fuck out of here. You're from the bird. Um, don't you, don't you, don't you, don't, 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 don't come on our show and, and put that bullshit, okay? You saved that for the Jed and Mike show. And you want to play it. Hey, 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 skinny diddly, leave me alone. <laughs> I came on, I came on, I came on here to be a guest, and you would treat me as such with the respect. Well, that way, thank you, fuck you, bye. That's it, guys. <laughs> That's it, guys. Um, we, uh, if you guys have been listening, um, we thank I thank you so much. Um, you can find I'm gonna try to get all of you guys' handles right because I should know it by heart, and that's just tell you how much a thoughtful friend I am. You can first find Cam on the gram of Insta at Barboho. You spell that French? She says it, not me. Barboho on Instagram. You can find her on the Twitter. On I like stuff six thirty, and you can also find her on the book. That's at the book of face. Yes, now I'm saying it on Cam E Ren. You can find Magu on Facebook. Mike Jones, who? Oh man, fuck y'all! Y'all should have y'all should have came with Mike Jones. Too late now. Don't do it now. Don't do it now. Hey, 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 hey. Listen, let me tell you something. I don't want you. 
I don't want you to be giving out all my information. Oh, I did shut not solicit. I'm trying to give you free plugs. You can find you, him on Twitter on the intern dude. And even though he's nope. not an intern, I deleted. I deleted my Twitter. You deleted, I deleted it? my Twitter. I deleted my Twitter. See, it was something. This is how bad of a best friend he is. He didn't even notice Cam that I, that I deleted my Twitter. I bet you, you. I bet you noticed that Marissa would delete some of her social media, wouldn't you? I do. I always do. See, because you're a real one. Oh, I'm a real one. And you, you hear that bird? Hey, hey, Savon, Savon, best friend, bestest best friend. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Maybe I need to put. Maybe I need to bring Claude on here. Or, or, Hi, Bird. There we go. Thank Hi, you, thank, thank you, love. And you can find Siobhan on the ground with Insta on Cinnamon Twenty Four. And you can find her on. Uh, what is the point of that Cinnamon thing, Siobhan? What What is that about? That's another podcast for another day. Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and you can find in the, her in the same in, in, in the same realm as Veronica. I see. Oh my God, we're getting inside jokes now. And you can find her on the Book of Fakes of Siobhan Johnson. I don't know why she hasn't turned it back to Dixon. I'm just putting it out there. But this is Illinois with Bird and Cam. For all of these guys, this is Bird telling you. Be there or be killed, killed, bitches. bitches.